Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a fantastic episode for you today. We are back with the dynamic trio. There's got to be a better word for that, but we have them. Uh, Dr. Mike Asando and Drs. Joseph Cody and Thomas Grawl go by Joe and Tommy from the Ohio State University. Uh, frequent listeners will know that they did a fantastic podcast on the use of non-transvenous pacemakers. And now we're back to do a really thorough update on ECMO. So we did, uh, on ACRAC, we did a prior podcast on ECMO with Dr. Scheinberg, which was great. But that, believe it or not, was already years ago. And it's such a dynamic field with a lot of new things happening. And so this is going to be a great, great update for those interested in learning more about what's going on in ECMO. So thank you guys for coming back on the show. Thanks for having us. Uh, we're, we're really delighted to be here. Awesome. All right. So let's jump right in and let's talk about some of the kind of background of ECMO, what it's used for and what the different options are. And Mike, if you want to start us off with that, I think that'd be great. Perfect. So ECMO, uh, which is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, uh, has been around since the 70s. Um, and it's basically used there are two platforms. It's for either supporting a failed, you know, lung, or for supporting uh, circulation in the sudden of, you know, heart failure. And heart failure can be heterogeneous, can be due to uh, postcardiotomy, heart dysfunction, can be due to an acute myocardial infarction, or um, also uh, patients who have cardiopulmonary they, who undergo arrest. Uh, we're using ECMO for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So. The two platforms that um, we'll talk about are Vitovenous ECMO, which is basically ECMO support and oxygenation, uh, mostly for lung failure. And there are also other strategies with Vitovenous ECMO where you have a failed lung, but the right ventricle may not also be working well. And there's another cannulation strategy with you know, the Protect Dual Cannula, which we'll get into later on. That provides a little bit of support for the right ventricle and also provides the oxygenation for the failed lung. So that's all, that's the right-sided, you know, ECMO. And then the left-sided ECMO is the VA or venoarterial ECMO where you basically essentially take blood from the right side of the heart. Uh, it goes through the ECMO circuit uh, for CO2 removal, oxygenation, uh, you can even do dialysis, you know, tie in dialysis with that. And then the blood is returned back, you know, to the patient. And that strategy basically uh, unloads the heart. You know, it takes away the load, the preload that the heart has to work with. But if you return the blood to the femoral artery, then you essentially provide some afterload for the heart. Uh, but if you return the blood to the ascending aorta, then the afterload issue is not 
um, there. Um, but other indications that ECMO has um, expanded to is, let's say a patient comes in and they are in refractory ventricular tachyarrhythmias like VT or VF, uh, and they, they are malperfusion uh, because of the arrhythmias, uh, we currently use ECMO also for such, you know, patients. And as we all know, the COVID-19, you know, uh, pandemic has led to uh, lung failure and also um, heart dysfunction. So uh, COVID myocarditis and COVID respiratory failure patients are also being treated, you know, with ECMO. So essentially ECMO has evolved, you know, since the basic use for just circulatory support and respiration. Uh, now it's being used for uh, protected uh, VT ablation. Uh, we can also use it for what we call protected PCI. If a patient needs a high-risk PCI and they, um, you know, they are on the verge of arrest, then you can even use these uh, ECMO platforms, you know, the VA ECMO uh, to support them. So uh, essentially that's where ECMO is today. Um, and we would discuss other strategies that uh, help uh, mitigate some of the limitations of ECMO. Great. That sounds fantastic. And Mike, let me ask you, I mean, for folks out there who are thinking, you know, look, I'm not a cardiac anesthesiologist. I'm not an intensivist. You know, what, what is the reason that this is good to know for the, your everyday anesthesiologist? Fantastic. So if a patient develops uh, cardiac arrest in a smaller hospital uh, and the interventional cardiologist, um, if they know, if they have the ability to place this, you may be called upon to provide anesthesia whilst they, you know, they do uh, this device placement. Uh, secondly, there is a lot of, especially with the, the peripheral cannulation where the, the, the femoral vein is used to drain the blood and the femoral artery serves as the return uh, pathway for blood back into the patient. Because the cannulists are, although they size them appropriately, they do take some of the real estate from the femoral artery. So with the retrograde delivery of blood flow, there's a high risk of limb ischemia. So if you're a general anesthesiologist on call and the cardiac patient, uh, let's say you have a cardiac anesthesiologist who is not in-house and there's an acute limb ischemia in the patient on ECMO, you may be called upon to help you know, with you know, the, the, the procedure. And also our ICU folks also need to know a lot about, you know, the current trends in ECMO. You know, it used to be just put the cannulas in, but now other aspects such as making sure that the left ventricle is not distended in a patient on ECMO, uh, which obviously will delay recovery of the ventricle is quite essential. So all anesthesiologists need to really understand, you know, these devices and uh, we also need to understand other platforms, other mechanical circulatory devices that are now being added to ECMO and the risk and benefits that come with all these complex uh, mechanical circulatory support systems. Absolutely. That sounds great. And, and I completely agree. I think that it's a no brainer for people who do cardiac anesthesia or critical care, especially cardiac critical care. But I think for everyone, as, as you've laid out, it's really a good thing to have some knowledge of. Um, because this is just becoming more and more common. All right, Joe, let me turn to you to take us through some of the components and approaches to VV ECMO, that first component that Mike explained, that first version of ECMO, let's say, that is for kind of lung failure, but not heart failure. Uh, take us through that. 
Sure. So I, I think probably the best way to start here is I'll talk about the um, strategy for uh, cannulation of VV ECMO. Um, and it can seem intimidating, but I think when we break it down appropriately, it's actually uh, pretty straightforward. So uh, I'll try to do that now. Uh, with um, VV ECMO, um, there are basically three main strategies of establishing it. Um, that we commonly see. Um, so there's your femoral uh, venous venous um, ECMO um, uh, um, approach. And uh, what that means is um, there's one cannula placed in the femoral vein on, uh, on one side of the body that will bring blood back to the ECMO circuit to give it oxygen. And there's a second one placed in the second femoral vein that will return oxygenated blood back to the, back to the body. The one that drains the blood from the body, um, is more, more distal, closer to the hepatic IVC level. Um, the one that returns it is closer to the RA. Um, so that's one strategy. It has a couple downsides. Um, the patients can't really get out of bed with two, uh, catheters in their groins. And there is a risk of, um, of a phenomenon called, um, recirculation and, uh, recirculation, means that the blood goes into the ECMO circuit, goes through it, goes back into the body, and goes right back into the ECMO circuit. So that would happen, say, if you had those cannulas, they were too close to uh, each other in the IVC, or I suppose it could be in the RA2. And um, But the point is the cannulas are too close, and then um, that doesn't benefit the patient. Uh, so you'd have to adjust your uh, cannulas. Um, a second strategy is you still have the drainage from the femoral vein, but you return the oxygenated blood back um, through through a cannula place in the uh, in the IJ. So that would be a a, a, um, a femoral IJ um, um, strategy. And because the two cannulas um, are further, the one taking the blood to the ECMO circuit and the one returning it to the patient's body, because they're sort of separated, one being in the IVC. And the second one being in the um, SVC RA junction or in the RA, that concern for uh, recirculation is lower. Um, and then there's a third um, strategy, which is a little bit newer. I mean, it's newer in the scheme of ECMO. It's not brand new. Is is a um, single cannula with two lumens in it. Um, they go by the their couple trade names out there. Um, Avalon's one, uh, Crescent is another. Um, I believe there are a few more if you look in the uh, literature, but th those are the two most common ones. And that's a single cannula with two lumens in it. And there's one lumen that brings the blood from the patient that doesn't have um, oxygen to the ECMO circuit. And there's another lumen that, that returns uh, the blood. And, and um, there are three separate ports. So there's two ports. There's a distal and proximal, and those are designed to sit in the SVC and the IVC. Um, those give your venous drainage of the um, deoxygenated blood. There's a third port sort of in the middle of those two ports, and that sits in the right, right uh, atrium. Um, that is the return port of the oxygenated blood, and the goal is to have that actually um, facing the tricuspid valve, so as the uh, blood comes out, it'll be oxygenated from the ECMO circuit and will go through the lungs to the 
um, uh, th through the right side of the body and uh, th um, circuit, and then eventually to the systemic um, uh, circuit. So um, this special cannula with the two uh, lumens is nice because it's a single uh, insertion site, usually through the right IJ. And patients can be much more mobile with this. Um, if, say, a patient needs to be prone, they can be proned more uh, easily. They can actually be extubated and walk and do uh, rehab or um, prehab. So um, so uh, those are some of the pros for doing um, that cannulation strategy. Um, so we talked about those three. Um, there's one more I want to talk about that's kind of special, but I want to pause here to see if you think there's anything else that we should we should say for people who are uh, listening in their cars or at the gym, uh, just to kind of summarize those three main uh, strategies. No, I think that's I think that's great that you covered those, Joe. And and I, you know I I want to just make clear to people who maybe are really unfamiliar with ECMO that with VV ECMO, uh, and you will correct me if I'm wrong. But what we're doing is oxygenating that blood, putting it back into the venous system. So, yes, it actually goes back through the lungs, right? So even though the lungs are not working, you're taking oxygenated blood, dumping it into the right side of the heart. It's getting pumped through the lungs, which presumably aren't doing a very good job of oxygenating it on their own, which is why we're doing this, and then gets pumped by a functional left heart out to the body. So that's... VV ECMO. And the VV means you're taking it out of the vein, putting it back in the vein, and then you're letting the heart pump it to the body, right? That's that's the idea. Right. Okay. Right, right. And, then, and um, yeah, oh no. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Jed, please. please. No, I was going to say that then, you know, the idea is there's different ways to do this. You you uh, elucidated them very nicely. And I think the advantage, as you said, of, of what's often referred to as the Avalon, though, as you said, that's only one trade name, is that it's just in the IJ. You can walk around, assuming things stay in place. Now, in my experience, and you tell me how much of an issue this is, if you're if that if that cannula moves a little bit, it can actually that like you said that valve that's supposed to be point or that outlet that's supposed to be pointing right at the tricuspid valve. If it's not pointing there, that can be problematic. And so sometimes you have patients who you'd like to get moving, but when they move, you feel like it moves, that cannula gets kind of malpositioned, and so they end up kind of stuck in bed too. But at least they have the opportunity, if things go well, to move around. Does that sound right? Yeah, and I think um, with, the, with the newer cannulas, um, they've, they've actually changed the design of how they're sutured in. Um, so they try to keep them so they don't move quite as much and that uh, return port does stay in the right atrium, uh, hopefully uh, pointing at the tricuspid valve. Um, you, you, you brought up a couple good points. Um, we, do, we're, we do here use um, TEE when we're uh, placing these to ensure that the right, uh, right uh, atrium and the tricuspid valve are, returning, are, are receiving that uh, return oxygenated blood. Um, because if that cannula is too low or too high, you're going to be, um, you know, say if it's too low, if it's too far in, that blood's going to be coming out into the IVC and going right back into the cannula, and it's never going to make it to the patient to help them out. Um, and a second point you, you had brought up is, um, yes, we're sending this blood through lungs that aren't working. Um, so, uh, and the, um, without getting too technical, but there's certain flows. So the ECMO say it's set to a flow of five liters per minute or so. 
and um, say it's a young person with a, a vigorous heart that's pumping at um, a, a cardiac output of eight liters, um, you could still see some hypoxia because you're going to have a shunt of, of, of these two circuits um, because you're still going to have some blood going through these bad lungs. Um, so that's sort of something that we think about when we're troubleshooting uh, hypoxia despite ECMO. Um, we look at our, our, our flows. Um, we take a look at how much oxygen the blood's getting from the machine and then we think about the cannula placement. Those are just some things we kind of think about as we're trying to troubleshoot this because it's not always a silver bullet and it does need some uh, TLC. Yeah. Um, and so the just to make that very clear to people, what you're mm-hmm. saying is that if the heart is pumping eight liters per minute and your ECMO in the flow up into the ECMO circuit is only five, there will be three liters per minute that are actually not getting taken up by the ECMO circuit and they're going into the lungs, which aren't oxygenating them because they're not working well. And so now you're mixing the five liters of oxygenated blood with three liters of non-oxygenated blood. And so you'll have a relative mix of oxygenated and non-oxygenated blood. Now, in theory, you could go up on your flows, but you, you know, we're, we won't get into all the technicalities of how to run ECMO, but that's, that's the point is that you, the fact that the lungs aren't working is still a factor. You can't make it perfect with the ECMO circuit. Right. And then what, one more thing um, to add is you still, even though the lungs may not be working perfectly, they may still be doing something. So you still want to have them on, you know, some ventilation, lung protective ventilation still, but they should still be on something. Um, I remember um, when I was a CA, uh, CA1, CA2, I was transporting a, a patient on ECMO and I said, well, uh, do I really have to ventilate them with an AMBU bag if they're are already on ECMO? And the answer is yes, you, you still should uh, ventilate them um, uh, appropriately despite being on support from ECMO. Right. All right. So Joe, tell us about this fourth idea, this fourth option. So, so the fourth option, it's, it's a little bit different, but in my mind, I think it still falls in the realm of EV and ECMO. Um, it's still a cannula. It has the pro, the, um, brand name is, um, a ProTech duo. And, um, we, we, we use these, all these, uh, devices on a daily basis. We don't uh, endorse any of them, but we, we use them and they help us take care of our patients. That's why we mention them. But, um, so the ProTech duo is a special cannula. And, uh, if you looked at it in the package, it looks kind of like a ECMO cannula, but the placement's different. And the, um, ports are, are different. So it's a, um, dual lumen uh, cannula. So it's similar in that respect to the Avalon or the Crescent, which we just talked about. But the actual placement ends up being different where the return port taking blood back to the ECMO circuit is actually in the right right atrium. And the blood that gives oxygenated blood to the, the port that gives the oxygenated blood to the body is in the pulmonary artery. So is, this is actually classified as a right ventricular um, assist a device or an RVAT. Um, however, uh, it can both give oxygenated blood to the body, um, or it can just give support. So if you have lungs that work and you just need the blood to flow to support the RV, it's also, um, effective in doing that too. Uh, usually RV failure and hypoxemia seem to go hand in hand. 
So it's nice to have that auctionator function, but you don't need to use it. Um, so that's a little bit different um, in that your port going to the ECMO circuit is in the right atrium and the port bringing blood back is in the pulmonary artery, which um, which we had seen previously with standard FEV ECMO, you have a drainage in the vena cava and the return is in the right atrium. So that's sort of the compare and contrast there. I, I hope it's making sense to the listeners. Uh, a, a picture would certainly help. We, we can actually probably put that in the show slides and in, in the show notes. Uh, right, Judd? Yeah, absolutely. We, yeah, we'll put we want, a, we, a picture or whatever you guys think would help. But I, I think it makes a lot we'll of sense the way you've. Pictures, yeah. yeah, that'd be great. I think what you're describing makes a lot of sense. And uh, I'm really curious to hear how you placed it because it sounds much more complicated than simply putting a, uh, a cannula in the in the IJ. So um, it's like placing a swan. Um, so if you think about how a swan is placed, um, you access the uh, right IJ and, um, you, um, there's no introducer cause this is so big. It is the, it is the introducer, but, um, you, um, uh, insert the, uh, cannulator, the, the, um, cannula that's you first place a guide wire and the guide wire is, um, um, placed through the, uh, RA through the RV into the main PA. It's guided by both. And so sorry, the um, guide. Not, you said the guide wire, but the guide wire is just used to get the cannula in, right? You don't put the guide wire into. So that. you no, the guide wire is actually used to help assist the device get all the way to the to the. Oh, main so the PA. wire goes into the PA. Yeah, it's it's done by the cardiac surgeon with a combination of echo guidance and uh, fluoroscopy. Um, but and I'd imagine you need to be really a, careful. I would just imagine you need to be very careful I, I, putting I, a wire yeah. in there. Yeah. 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 And, and I think uh, that's why the modalities of both TE and, and, and fluoro um, are very important because each advancement of that wire uh, is, is monitored very carefully with both of the modalities. Um, there is, I, I know that the manufacturer has almost like a special, like a Swan Gans catheter with the balloon and everything, um, our proceduralists, I haven't seen them use that, but I know it is available. Um, and so the final product is this, um, cannula with, uh, um, placed with a, with a distal port in the PA and a proximal port in the RA. Fascinating. Uh, this is so interesting. And so, as you said, really functions as an ECMO circuit. In other words, it will oxygenate blood for patients whose lungs can't do that well on their own. But also, if a patient happens to have a failing right heart, it will bypass the right heart. It will give that oxygenated blood into the PA so that even if the RV can't pump it there itself, you can still use this device. So how do you decide? I mean, obviously, if you knew a patient had RV failure, that would make your choice easy. You would need something like Mm -hmm. this. Otherwise, how do you decide who to use the Avalon versus this new Protect Duo versus, you know, something else like traditional just femfem? That's a that's a great question. I think that um, it's affected by I, I think that they're from center to center. There are probably some um, uh, uh, preferences. But the biggest thing when we're trying to decide if we're going to use a Protect Duo Arvad or a standard um, 
um, uh, ECMO, uh, whether it be Avalon cannula or FemFem or FemIJ is the presence of um, RV failure. So we do, um, we do these with TEE. So if the RV is really struggling, we may opt to say, hey, look, uh, you can put the oxygenated blood there in the RA, but the RV is not going to get it to the, to the body. So if we're doing our echo and we're seeing RV failure, uh, that would make us more inclined to, to go with a Protect Duo device as opposed to um, your Avalon cannula or your standard VV ECMO. Something else, this is sort of a niche, uh, less common thing, but um, I'm, as I had discussed, the, the, the venous drainage is almost always through the IVC with VV ECMO. With... Um, with uh, this device, it's actually through the RA. So if you have a patient where you can't use the uh, IVC, for example, if they have an IVC filter, this may be a good alternative. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so let's talk about anticoagulation. Patients who are on VV ECMO, do they need anticoagulation? If so, is it, you know, how is it done? Is it the same level of anticoagulation as someone on a cardiopulmonary bypass circuit in the OR? Or is it less than that? Tell me about that. Um, I, um, unfortunately I don't have a straightforward, uh, this is the answer. Um, I think it's institution uh, dependent at this point. Um, I can tell you that when these cannulas are placed, pretty much everyone will give a dose of, um, heparin, um, uh, for the placement, just cause there is some venous stasis as they're placing the cannulas and getting the circuit ready. So, um, typically there will give a 5,000, unit um, push of um, heparin just prior to the cannulas being placed. Um, um, and then after that, um, it seems to be uh, dependent on the institution for anticoagulation for VV ECMO. Um, some centers follow ACTs, some, some centers follow PTTs. Um, some centers just uh, rely on the um, heparin coating that is in the uh, ECMO circuit. Um, and, and it seems that the trend with VV ECMO is people are getting away from systemic anticoagulation. Now they're still getting their VTE, uh, prophylaxis dose of heparin or Lovenox or whatever is appropriate. Patients are still receiving that. Um, but the trend does seem to be for, um, VV ECMO, they're, not anticoagulated is the trend, though some centers still are follow, are doing it with certain goals for PTT or um, or ACT. Um, you, you know, if you have a thrombus or problem on the venous side, you, you, you the, the most common uh, um, uh, uh, complications are are um, clotting of the VV ECMO circuit or uh, oxygenator. In which case, you'd have to change that out. Or uh, or a DVT, um, which is so like while you certainly don't want clots there, uh, they're a lot less devastating uh, than a clot on the arterial side. So I think it's just we're trying to figure out um, the best strategy here still, but the trend is going towards not anticoagulating patients uh, systemically unless there's another reason while they're on VV ECMO. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, great. All right. Tommy, let me turn to you to talk about some of the complications and pitfalls that we see when we're doing VV ECMO 
Sure. So there definitely are a lot of complications with with VB ECMO, and um, I think this is one of the reasons that some of the surgeons get frustrated. They get so many consults for ECMO, people thinking that it's a savior, but uh, we really need to be judicious with this stuff because there are a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, probably one of the most common things is bleeding issues. So if you look in their literature, somewhere between 30 and 50% of patients usually have bleeding issues. And that could either be at the site of the cannulas, which is a little bit nicer because the surgeon can actually come in and try to address that. Um, the bigger problem is when you get GI bleeding or uh, hemorrhagic stroke, something like that uh, can definitely be more of an issue. Um, and this is related, I assume, to the anticoagulation and probably the reason Joe said we're trying to move away from so, so much anticoagulation. Uh, it's partially related to the anticoagulation, but the other thing is being on the ECMO circuit itself causes platelet dysfunction, mm. um, inflammatory response and such. And it's thought that that, uh, along with the person's illness, such as in COVID, can also contribute to a lot of bleeding issues. Um, so I think overall with anticoagulation, the most important thing is you kind of have a multidisciplinary team. You have a, a perfusionist, a surgeon, intensivist, they're all seeing the patient every day and monitoring so that you have established guidelines, say, for when you're going to um, kind of make the decision to scale back or scale up on the anticoagulation based on signs of hemolysis, oxygenator clot, uh, things like that. Okay, great. So bleeding, uh, definitely a major issue. What else? Um, so the other issue we kind of already touched on, especially with uh, femoral, femoral ECMO, VV ECMO, is recirculation. Uh, the only thing I really have to add to that is there's actually usually a pretty easy way to tell if you're recirculating. And if you look at the ECMO circuit, there'll be a, a saturation. One will be for the outflow cannula and one will be for the inflow cannula. So if the circuit is working properly, the return cannula should have a sat of around 100, right? Because you're oxygenating that blood. Um, but if the outflow cannula is having a very similar high saturation, say it's 96%, then you know you're probably recirculating quite a lot of blood. And that's when you could talk to the surgeon and say, hey, I think one of the cannula positions need to be adjusted because they're too close together. Great. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So nice to have those two saturation monitors. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Um, another issue that can happen sometimes is you get increase in sense of DVTs from having those 
large cannulas in the groins obstructing some of the return flow from the legs. And of course, another issue, especially if you're not anticoagulating, is you can get thromboembolisms or PEs. And is, so those cannulas, as you said, can obstruct flow. If they obstruct flow completely, and Mike alluded to this up front, can you get like limb ischemia? Is that an issue? Um, I think that would be more with VA ECMO when you have the arterial cannula. And I think we'll probably hit on that later, but a lot of times to solve that, people use what's called a distal perfusion catheter that shoots some amount of blood distally into the leg for VA ECMO. Great. Great. All right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is probably more applicable to VA. So what we're really thinking with VV is that if you have stasis, you can get clots. Those clots obviously could lead to PEs uh, or obviously if they got over to the left side to strokes. Okay. So that's another potential complication. Anything else? I think those were the main things. Um, Oxygenator thrombus, I kind of mentioned before, but that's another issue, especially if you're not anticoagulating and Usually your ICU nurse will be checking that. You'll see their flashlight and they, they look at the oxygenator usually by shift to monitor for any kind of clots. And you can solve that by switching the oxygenator it involves a, a bit of work and, and such, but uh, that's another complication. Okay, good. So obviously if you're doing this, you need to keep an eye on that as well. All right, perfect. Joe, let's go back to you and talk about how do we get somebody off ECMO? So we've used it for one of the indications that Mike covered initially, and we now think, you know, this patient's lungs seem like they're maybe getting a little better, or maybe we just want to know if they're getting a little better. How do we figure that out? How do we find out if they can get off of ECMO? And if they're ready, how do we get them off it? Yeah, that's a uh, great question. So, um, when you begin to see some evidence of lung uh, recovery, so there are kind of three three main things we take a look at, and they're not surprising things. I think um, I think the majority of the listeners would guess when the oxygenation begins to improve, when the ventilation begins to improve, and when the compliance begins to to uh, improve. Um, I think with um, ARDS or or uh, or or uh, COVID. Uh, ARDS, which is uh, uh, beginning to get its own type of uh, disease uh, uh, naming, um, I think when the compliance starts to get better and and you're 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 delivering the same um, uh, driving pressures but getting better volumes back, that's a good sign there. So um, so then um, the. Um, if you think that that it's possible to deliver adequate ventilation and still maintain um, lung uh, protective uh, ventilation, then you can start to think about weaning the VV uh, ECMO. So um, there are kind of two ways to do it. Um, depending on institution practice, there's no handbook of you must do it this way. Um, so what most centers do is they begin to turn down the VV ECMO flows so as as we had talked uh, earlier, say the ECMO flow is set at five. So that's five liters of blood flowing through the circuit per minute. Um, you may decrease that to um, uh, 4.5 or four liters. And then um, you can give that uh, 30 or 60 uh, minutes or so and then check a blood gas both pre-change and post-change and see how the patient did with that decrease in flow through the circuit. Um, and then 
um, there's the flow, which we've talked about, but I don't think we've talked about sweep and, um, and, uh, sweep is another, uh, it's a common uh, parameter that comes up, um, when people are talking about uh, ECMO and sweep is just a fancy word for the, for the, um, uh, amount of the gas flow going through the oxygen, um, membrane through the ECMO through, through, through the, through the oxygen through the, sorry, through the membrane uh, oxygenator that's attached to the uh, ECMO uh, circuit. Um, so there are basically two, two knobs, and that affects how much uh, gas is going through. And then, uh, and then there's typically a third knob, which, it, which changes the um, FiO2 for the, um, for the VV ECMO machine. So um, you turn the flow down, but then you turn your sweep down too. And then uh, same thing, uh, 30 to 60 minutes, y- you check a gas. And then typically, you'll make one change and the patient will stay at that setting for so many hours before you decrease it more, just to ensure that they tolerate it. If you have to go back up, you have to go back up. Um, when, when the weaning is successful and the sweep is turned totally off, um, at that point, you basically just have blood going through a circuit that's not getting oxygen added to it or, or uh, CO2 um, taken um, uh, um, um, away. Um, so the point of sweep is to oxygenate and take away the, the CO2. Um, it's sort of a, I, I don't know, it's a term that I didn't totally understand. And then after you, you see the machine, it makes more sense. It's just the flow going through the oxygenator. Um, if weaning is successful and um, the PA and FiO2 uh, ratio is 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 uh, reasonable, the CO2 is reasonable, and your peak peak and plateau uh, airway pressures look good, um, then the circuit can be totally stopped and the candle is taken out. But it's important to keep the uh, circuit flow going um, till the candles come out, because otherwise you just have uh, some stasis of blood and pulling of blood, which will, which will uh, clot off. So, uh, does that make, make sense or? Yeah, I think that was really well explained. So sweep really nice, you know, concept to bring up important thing you can control on the circuit. I think of it as, you know, essentially the airflow that's sweeping away the CO2. So if you, and it's also sweeping in the oxygen, but as you said, you can control how much oxygen. So you have two FIO2s for a patient on ECMO, right? You have the vent, just like any patient on a ventilator. So you can give them whatever percentage of oxygen you want to give going through their lungs on the vent. And then you have the ECMO FIO2. And then the sweep is how, essentially how fast, how much flow of new oxygen and air coming in and how much CO, how much flow taking CO2 away is going past that membrane. And so, like, uh, as you said, and I think this is, sounds exactly right to me, you can't turn the flows off to see if someone tolerates being off ECMO because then you've just got blood sitting in a circuit that's just going to clot. But what you can do is turn the sweep off and then you have just f- blood flowing through the circuit without having any gas exchange done by the ECMO machine. It's all being done by the patient. And if they tolerate that well, then great. They don't need the ECMO anymore. So I think that was really well explained. All right, Tommy, right, let no, me go back... Uh, Sorry, Joe, go ahead. Nope, nope. Thank you. Nope. 
All right, Tommy, let me turn back to you. Let's talk about VA ECMO now. You, you touched on this when I jumped ahead with my question about limb ischemia. But let's start by talking about the components and strategies of VA ECMO. Um, so the VA ECMO, it's really very similar to VV ECMO. And um, you, you're really going to have the same components. You'll have an inflow and an outflow cannula. Uh, you'll have your pump and you'll have the oxygenator. Um, and the first type really that you probably won't see very often outside of the OR is central VA ECMO. And this is most commonly done uh, if the patient had some sort of open heart surgery and wasn't able to wean off of the bypass machine, you can leave them on the central VA ECMO. So the arterial cannula will be in the ascending aorta and the venous cannula will probably be in the right atrium. So this is a nice strategy because you have anti-grade flow in the aorta and you'll have, usually have very good drainage from the venous side. The disadvantage, of course, is that their chest is going to be open. Um, so really, this isn't done very often unless they're already in the OR with an open chest. Yeah. Um, more commonly, what you'll see is a peripheral cannulation, uh, femoral, femoral. So your outflow cannula will be in the femoral vein, and it's usually a multi-stage femoral cannula. And when they say multi-stage, what that means is you'll have multiple openings at the end of the cannula, and that cannula is positioned up towards the right atrium um, at the SVC-RA junction. And so with those multiple holes, you'll hopefully drain a majority of the venous blood. And then the arterial cannula will be in the femoral artery, uh, bringing back oxygenated blood into the arterial system. So this is what we use generally for heart failure support when they're at kind of an end stage heart failure. Um, one problem with the VA ECMO is that you have, you tend to get loading of the left ventricle. So if you think you're pushing all this blood into the aorta and that's going to kind of pressurize the aorta and the, the heart is going to have to pump against that. And generally, you don't, like we talked about earlier with ECMO, a lot of times you don't have 100% drainage of the uh, heart. So you're still going to have some blood filling into the left ventricle. And if you have, for instance, an ischemic heart that you're trying to recover with VA ECMO, increasing the afterload is really not going to be good for that heart. So there's a couple of different strategies that we tend to do for this. Uh, probably the simplest is to use ionotropes and to try to generate more pressure from the left ventricle. Uh, probably a better solution that's used, that's being used more and more is to put an impella in. And so this is a catheter that goes from the femoral artery and is placed into the uh, left ventricle. So the it's got basically an opening distally and that's in the left ventricle and then another opening in the ascending aorta, so it will suck blood out of the left ventricle and shoot it out into the ascending aorta. And that's a really nice way to uh, unload the left ventricle and help it recover. Um, the other more traditional way you can unload the left ventricle on ECMO is to use a balloon pump. And so that's basically a, a balloon that sits in the aorta and during diastole, it's gonna inflate, help increase the afterload and, and improve your um, coronary perfusion pressure and then during systole it's going to deflate 
and help reduce the afterload the heart's pumping against. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And so, uh, you know, the key here for folks is that with VA ECMO, you're dealing not only with the need to oxygenate the blood and take CO2 away, but also the need to circulate it because the heart, you're doing this for people whose left ventricle can't do it alone. And so you've laid out nicely how you're taking blood from the venous side, oxygenating it, taking out the CO2, and then injecting it into the arterial side. And when you're injecting it into the aorta, as you said, some of that is going to go towards the heart, which in diastole is a good thing because you want to perfuse the the, uh, coronary arteries. But during systole, then it's just something that that heart, which is already in failure, is having to fight. So I think that's great. And you laid out some nice ideas for how you can help counter that uh, by using other devices. So what about um, when you are trying to put do this cannulation. You, you mentioned the central cannulation, obviously done with an open chest in the OR. With peripheral cannulation, is it done blind? Do you use guidance? How do you place it? Uh, it can really depend a lot on the situation. Um, a common scenario that you'll see is the femoral VACMO being put on during a code or an emergency situation, and that's usually done at the bedside blind. Um, but if it's a more controlled situation, it seems like a lot of the surgeons like to do it in the OR because they've got a more controlled environment. They usually have fluoro, and a lot of times we'll use echo to help them as well to visualize the guide wire and the cannula up in into the right atrium. And a lot of times also they'll put a wire up with the arterial stick, and they'll want us to confirm just that we see a wire in the descending aorta and then it didn't go somewhere else. Okay. Let me ask you, what is VAV ECMO? Yeah, so triple cannulation is a little bit more difficult to understand, um, but it's something that probably you'll be seeing a little more of. Um, And triple cannulation is something that can be done if you're having problems with not draining well enough or you need more uh, respiratory support. So VAV ECMO, basically the two main types of triple cannulation are uh, VAV and VVA. And the way that has been proposed for the uh, convention of naming them is that any letter that's before the A will be, let me make sure I say this right, letters before the A are outflow cannulas and letters after the A are inflow cannulas. So with VAV ECMO, the first V is an outflow cannula, the A is an inflow cannula into the artery, and then the second V is also an outflow cannula but it's going into the right atrium. And so if you're on VA ECMO and you need more respiratory support, say you're getting North-South syndrome, which I'll let Dr. Essendo talk about later, you can put a second venous cannula in that will actually be an outflow cannula into the right atrium to help oxygenate better. Okay. And uh, the other... The other option is VVA ECMO, and sometimes if you're having insufficient unloading of the LV, a strategy you could use is to put two venous cannulas in, one in, one femorally and one through the IJ, so you really drain almost all that blood and you don't have anything left coming into the left ventricle. Great. Awesome. Does that all make right. sense? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Thanks for laying those out. Let me ask you about anticoagulation for VA ECMO. Is it different than VV ECMO? 
Uh, yep. So generally, almost everyone will be anticoagulated for VA ECMO just because the consequences of having some any kind of thromboembolism or clot are a lot worse because now you're, you're in the arterial system, you're looking at a stroke. So I think the numbers that people measure vary, but a lot of institutions will go by PTT and shoot for for something like one and a half to two times what their institutional normal value is. Great. All right. Thank you very much. Mike, let me time. turn. Sorry, Tommy, what was that? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say a lot of times, like we were saying, you do end up dealing with bleeding issues and the anticoagulation will end up being positive. You kind of just have to weigh the risks and the benefits of the current situation. Absolutely. All right, great. Mike, let me turn back to you to talk about some of the hemodynamic consequences and the monitoring we use for VA ECMO. Okay, so um, the, like as Tommy you know, said initially, the central VA ECMO where the chest is open, you have a right atrial cannula, and then you have you know, your ascending aortic cannula, um, that typically is not too much of an issue with monitoring uh, because the blood, you, it's, analogous to being on cardiopulmonary bypass, right? So most of the time you go on bypass for a case. And then when you finish surgery, the patient has a post-cardiotomy, you know, low cardiac output syndrome. So they just use the same cannulas. So drainage return is anti-grade. And whenever you have anti-grade return, you don't get into too many of the other problems. So with that, you know, wherever your arterial line is and your, if you have a PA catheter or not, it's not too big of a deal. Uh, the, the real monitoring issue comes with the peripheral VA ECMO. And as Tommy stated, you're returning blood retrograde, you know, through the aorta, uh, sorry, through the uh, femoral artery, aorta, and then some of it, you want the blood to basically go into the coronary arteries and also to the brain, right? And by so doing, you end up creating a huge afterload for a failing ventricle, especially if you have a ventricle that chronically has been unloaded because of mitral regurgitation where the blood goes back into the left atrium. When you start returning blood retrograde and if the patient has been on bypass for a longer time, that ventricle cannot push blood back out. So you end up with stasis in the ventricle and then uh, you end up with increase in left atrial pressure and your pulmonary uh, venous pressure is also increase and obviously it will be reflective in your PA pressure. So it's quite essential to have a PA catheter in, in most patients that have um, peripheral VA ECMO. Uh, there are a lot of studies that have actually shown an association with better recovery and better uh, survival with those with patients that have PA catheters and peripheral VA ECMO, because you use that surrogate of the PA diastolic or your wedge pressure to basically show that the ventricle is distended. And a failing ventricle on ECMO does not need further distension because it would not recover you know, well enough. So the PA catheter is a really essential um, monitor. Uh, the second thing is, it's very important to have a right-sided arterial line, um, right radial, right brachial, because the, as the ventricle starts recovering, it would start ejecting. And if you're ejecting, but there is mismanagement of, you know, uh, vent ventilation by obviously the, the practitioners, or let's say the patient really has recovered cardiac-wise, but they haven't recovered pulmonary-wise, 
the ejection of blood from that ventricle, either by native ejection from uh, either trip support or even with the use of a balloon pump or, um, or an impeller, when you eject that blood, because it's going to compete with the oxidated blood coming from the ECMO, the majority of that blood will go down the coronaries or may go up to the brain. So you may end up with a patient that is an ECMO, your peripheral circulation is well, but you're ejecting deoxygenated blood to the brain and to uh, the coronary. So having a right-sided arterial line would guide you to better manage the lungs or to switch to uh, the VAV strategy where you may return some oxygenated blood back you know, into the lungs. So whatever ejects from the heart has better oxygen content than not. And uh, the third most important point, so obviously an A-line, um, a PA catheter, your central venous pressure is not a good reflection of obviously your left-sided you know, filling because we really, on peripheral VA ECMO, we want the left ventricle to be decompressed. You want it unloaded so it can recover you know, rapidly. So when you go on VA ECMO and you're using inotropes for, uh, to augment you know, ejection, uh, you really want to monitor with echocardiography. So if you use echo for X amount of time and you see that the ventricle still stays distended, then you can suggest uh, active unloading with an impeller. It can be, uh, there are different impellers. There are smaller pumps. Uh, the 2.5 is rarely used because it's not, it only gives you about two and a half liters per minute. Majority of centers would either use the CP, which gives you up to four, four and a half liters uh, per minute, um, that has a pigtail and is routinely implanted through the femoral arteries. Uh, the 5.0 also has a pigtail, is implanted through the femoral artery. And echo is really useful for placement because the pigtail can get entangled with the mitral valve and then you trade uh, decompression issue with, you know, potentially disrupting, you know, the, the mitral valve or other structures. And echo also is essential to guide you uh, to properly place the impeller. So the smaller pumps like the 2.5, the CP, and the 5.0, the inflow like of the impeller where it basically um, expels blood, you know, the, the inflow into the impeller should be about three and a half centimeters from the aortic valve. Whereas for the larger scale pumps like the 5.5 and the LD, those are basically implanted through a graft um, routinely sutured through the uh, the axillary artery on the right side, those pumps have to be about five centimeters from the aortic valve. And if you make an error with malpositioning, there will be profound hemolysis. So you're not going to be unloading the ventricle well, and then you're also going to be hemolyzing. So echocardiography is very essential. So the three main monitors for all peripheral VA ECMOs, obviously an arterial line, I would argue for PA catheter rut routinely and uh, echocardiography to kind of guide you with unloading the ventricle and better position of uh, impellers. Great. So just to make sure I understand. So the right-sided arterial line, the right radial, or as you said, right, the right arm arterial line, that's just getting at the closest monitor. If we could monitor the coronary arteries themselves or the cerebral arteries, that'd be great. But since we can't, the first thing the first vessel coming uh, as you're ejecting out of the heart is going to be the right 
uh, brachiocephalic, it's going to take blood to the right arm, right? And so, uh, and the brain, but the one we're going to monitor is the right arm. And so you, we assume that if the oxygenation in that right arm is good, then hopefully it's good in the brain and in the rest of the body. And we can't measure the actual coronary artery oxygen, but we assume that it's pretty close to that right-sided vessel coming off the aorta. So if it's good there, we hope it's good in the coronary arteries. Is that right? Yes. Yes, certainly. Yep. So, so let's say you have a left radio A-line, right? And you have five, six liters of blood coming up, you know, the aorta. That is always going to reflect um, the, the oxygen contents from the VA ECMO. Um, but if you end up with ejection of deoxygenated blood, there is no way that that radio arterial line on the left side can reflect that. So you may have, let's say, normal perfusion to maybe the left, you know, uh, carotid, but mild perfusion to the right. So that's why it's, it's a concept of Harlequin syndrome, differential oxygenation, um, that you essentially, even if you place that ECMO on a patient that had a left side arterial line, you should not consider. You should certainly place uh, one on the right side. Uh, a, yeah. cere a cerebral oximeter may help you with that differentiation. Also, um, it it would it's best you know on the right side versus the left, right? But if somebody has really great circle of Willis, if they have great oxygen delivery to the left MCA, it may confound you know the measures because the cerebral oximeter is not it doesn't give you the whole global brain oxygenation. So it's 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 very essential to have a right sided arterial line so you really can know what is coming through the heart. And it also guides you with de-escalation strategies. So let's say you have a patient on VA ECMO and you have an impella in, and the ventricle has recovered a bit, but they're not all the way there. And you have maybe limb ischemia, you're worried about having these big catheters in through the groin, but you have like a 5.0, 5 5.5 in, right? So the patient can get cardiac support of up to five and a half liters with the impella 5.5. You can then take the VA ECMO out and leave the impella, right? to support the left ventricle. But if you have your arterial line on the right side, which is showing adequate hemodynamics, right, but poor oxygenation, then you can think about maybe, you know, transitioning from a VA ECMO to a VV ECMO with impella support of the left side as the lungs are recovering. So it does, yeah, the, the, it does give you a lot of flexibility in fine-tuning your approach for um, ECMO. Yeah, that's great. That's really well explained. So I think that's great. And and the idea is the impella, which is taking blood out of the LV and injecting it into the aorta, in other words, doing what the left heart normally does, but doesn't do anything with oxygenation. So if the if you if the lungs have recovered and now you the lungs can oxygenate just fine, but the left heart still needs support, as you said, you can stop the ECMO, leave the impella in. So that's really great. All right. And then the other thing I imagine is that uh, aortic insufficiency would be a problem, right? If you're pumping blood back into the femoral artery and uh, and you have wide open AI, it's just going to flood and, and do the opposite of what you were just saying you want to do, which is decompress the LV. It's just going to flood the LV. So uh, obviously you mentioned using TEE and one thing you can look for with TEE is also that, arterial, uh, that aortic insufficiency, right? 
Yes. So that that also brings up the importance of TE in in all these mechanical circulatory platforms. So the first thing is if there is this even major uh, any suspicion for thrombus, you cannot place an impeller. So so surveillance um, imaging with transfusion echocardiography before you place these devices is, is is crucial. So thrombus is one of them. The presence of profound aortic insufficiency actually may make the peripheral VA ECMO, uh, you know, contraindicated in my opinion. If you have more, you know, morbid AI like severe AI, once you bring blood back retrograde, it's going to flood the left ventricle. The left ventricle is going to be distended. Then you end up with pulmonary edema, and there'll be, you know, the your ET tube is going to be filled with blood. So if there's a fair amount of AI, but it's not quote unquote surgically. Um, let's say you didn't come to the OR for that reason. You just came in to place uh, VA ECMO. ECHO can guide you to potentially switch switch your strategy from a peripheral approach to a central approach. So you have more integrate flow with less aortic insufficiency rather than a five liter retrograde flow. But um, ruling out the thrombus with uh, prior to impeller placement on an ECMO patient is also essential. And if the patient even had a mechanical valve placed in the mitral position and you have spontaneous echo contrast in place, um, then you want to also consider the impeller. So the impeller can take the blood out, reduce stasis, prevent thrombus, uh, but also think about all the other, the, the index surgery and the risk for thrombosis in the patient's heart whilst you're making this decision. But you don't want to walk out of the operating room thinking that, you have optimal circulatory support with the peripheral VA ECMO because your blood pressure is going to be great, oxygenation is going to be great, but if there is stasis in the LV because the ventricle cannot pump out the blood, do not leave that patient without some active way of unloading the left ventricle. The intraaortic balloon pump, you know, others have stated that it does work, but it's not an active device in unloading the left ventricle. It basically, when it deflates, it provides some suction um, to the LV. It just augments the LV's ejection. You may get maybe half a liter to a liter. So if you have profound LV distension, don't go to the intraaortic balloon pump as your unloading device. Uh, it's best to consider uh, an impeller. And ambulation is also critical if somebody has, you know, the peripheral VA ECMO platform, but you know that it was just a profound shot from the operating room. They may recover in a day or two, but they may not have like full recovery. Um, going the axillary route enables early ambulation, right, versus going femoral where they have to be bed bound with an impeller. So all these are considerations that we have to think about in, you know, as anesthesiologists. Great. All right. That was really fantastic. A lot of really good info there. Thanks, Mike. Joe, let me turn back to you to talk now about weaning from VA ECMO. So we had previously talked about weaning from VV ECMO. How is it different with VA ECMO? Uh, there are some 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 nuances, certainly, and some similarities with, with uh, weaning from uh, VA ECMO. Um, so it's if a patient is on uh, VA ECMO for... Um, circulatory uh, support, you certainly want to give some time for the heart to, to recover. So I'd say, you know, one to two days post-placement of the ECMO, you can start to think about weaning. Uh, but you, you definitely want to give the heart some time to kind of um, uh, 
rest and recover. So um, what typically will happen is the slows is the flows are um, gradually turned down, similar to VV, except you except with the VV you worry about a hypoxemia. With VA you worry more about um, uh, hypotension and um, problems with your um, hemodynamics. So you'll turn your flow down. Um, you know, say you're on five liters of support again, you'll turn it down to 4.5 or four. Um, you'll, you'll check gases, um, keep an eye on urine output, um, keep an eye on blood pressures, your um, inotropic support. All those things should stay pretty steady. If you turn down your flows and you're significantly going up on your inotropes or that sort of thing, then you may not be ready to wean quite yet. Um, it's important to get um, serial um, TTEs, both to take a look at the um, LV distension. As we discussed at depth, you don't want the LV to be uh, distended, and it gives you an idea of the function of, of the uh, recovery. Um, I will say echo can be deceptive in that if you have a patient who's on, on um, full support with the um, uh, preload basically being taken up all by the VA ECMO circuit and the LV not having anything to uh, eject, you may have a heart that looks kind of sluggish, but then if you were to do sort of a trial and turn down your ECMO flows to allow there to be more preload for the, the um, RV to uh, eject and the LV to uh, eject, then you may see the heart perk up. So that's sort of a caveat to getting um, echocardiograms on VA support and, and um, weaning and um, bedside POCUS, TTE or um, TEE can be helpful for the weaning. Um, some other things we look at is um, the return of um, pulsatility in both the arterial and PA waveforms. Um, I, that's a pretty telltale sign. Um, I've taken care of patients with um, a post-cardiomy shock, I bring them to the ICU, uh, usually at three in the morning on, you know, it's just how, how the business works. And then um, they have uh, on, uh, on uh, full support from uh, VA ECMO, the uh, arterial and the PA waveforms are essentially flat. I'll go back in a day or two and I'll go, oh, that's great. Now we have uh, pulsatility, which is a nice sign that the heart's beginning to recover. So um, in essence, um, optimize the patient um, from a everything else standpoint, begin to turn the flows down, see how they do from a, a hemodynamic standpoint, um, and you know, take a look at other things, things we always looked at, that urine output, um, lactate, uh, those sorts of things. Um, and then if you think the patient is ready for a uh, decannulation, we'll usually bring them down to as low as a flow of um, 2.5 liters per minute or so. Um, that's not a hard number. Some practitioners will go a little lower, some are uncomfortable to go up that low. Then we'll bring them to the OR and um, we'll give some heparin, turn the flows down more, um, take a look at the heart with the TEE, um, and ensure that we're not going up significantly on our on our um, either um, our uh, vasoactive agents, um, epi, melanone, um, norepi, depending on the patient, 
um, each patient will be different. And then um, if that's successful, we will uh, decannulate. Um, this is done in the OR um, for a few reasons. One, the femoral artery needs to be uh, repaired. Uh, two, um, TEE is, um, is, uh, is uh, readily um, available in the, in the OR, and I think a critical tool to uh, successfully wean. And then um, three, if you have to go back on ECMO, you certainly could. Um, so that's sort of how, 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 how uh, we do it. Um, if you are reading about the ECMO weaning, some places will actually do this bridge circuit where they'll connect the arterial and the venous limbs to keep them um, flowing and they'll disconnect the patient from the ECMO circuit. Um, and that way, if you had to go back on, you could. Uh, our approach here typically is we'll give some, uh, some uh, heparin and we'll drastically turn the flows down and kind of test it that way. So you could do it either way, but that's sort of how we do it. Um, do you want to summarize or talk about anything I talked about? Joe, I think you, you covered it really well. And, you know, the, it's obviously there's some differences, but similar in the sense of what we talked about with VV ECMO in that you're going to turn things down gradually and monitor the patient. Whereas with VV, you're monitoring oxygenation. With VA, you're really monitoring heart function through all the things that you said, by looking with the TEE, by measuring measures of perfusion like lactate, by looking at the uh, function of the heart itself. And so as that, if it looks good, as you said, you can take them off completely. You can give heparin and go way down on the flows. And if everything looks good, take it off. So I think that was a really nice summary. Um, um, Tommy, I, I, yeah, Joe, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I did want to mention a couple of problems we can see um, yeah. during the weaning. Um, so the patient may not wean and they may not be, uh, be um, ready. So there have been a couple patients where they had weaned them in the ICU. We thought they were probably optimized. We brought them for a, for a uh, weaning trial in the OR. We turned the flows down and they, their heart had not recovered uh, enough. So um, at that point, you have to come up with a plan, either keep them on ECMO or come up with some plan to support them. Um, some other thing that we can see, we discussed a, a little bit, but as you wean the VA ECMO, you have to keep in mind that the main goal is the circulatory support, but that blood is also uh, oxygenated. So sometimes the lungs, the heart recovers, but the lungs do, don't yet. So for those patients, um, we don't just leave them on VA ECMO if they're ready to come off uh, the uh, VA ECMO, we'll take them off, but we'll switch them to VV ECMO, which is um, advantageous because it, the um, anticoagulation anti demands aren't quite as high. Um, so that's just a couple of things I wanted to say with trouble with weaning. Great. Thanks for adding that, Joe. So, Tommy, do you want to say a word about, we kind of, this came up earlier, but when we think about ECMO for COVID. Is there anything different, anything we want to keep in mind for patients who have severe COVID and are going on ECMO? Yeah, so there is uh, some interesting things. Um, you know, I think it's kind of funny that we're here talking about COVID and ECMO because actually probably one of the main events that gave the rise of ECMO becoming so popular was the H1N1 outbreak. And that in 2009, I think along with the CSER trial, those were kind of two of the big things that really increased the popularity of ECMO. And actually, if you look from 2006 to 2011, um, there's been a like 400% increase in use of ECMO. Um, but anyways, in regards to 
COVID ECMO, um, the ELSO, Extracorporeal Life Support Organization. If you Google ELSO, they actually have a really nice dashboard that highlights all the uh, registry data they have about COVID ECMO. And uh, so there's actually been a lot of um, ECMO runs so far in the world. They have over 6,000 documented for COVID ECMO. Most of them actually been in North America, over 4,000 in North America. Um, and you'll see on their dashboard, the mortality rate is pretty similar to traditional ARDS ECMO, which is about 49% right now. Um, also, if you look on the ELSA website, they have just published their updated guidelines for COVID-19 ECMO. Um, so that's a nice thing you could take a look at. Um, there's a couple big things I wanted to highlight with COVID ECMO. Uh, one is RV dysfunction. So there's things coming out in the literature that people are seeing a lot higher rate of RV dysfunction or failure in COVID patients. Um, one study from International Journal of Cardiology, they actually looked at 99 patients with COVID and saw a 72% rate of RV dysfunction. And for those that are cardiac trained, you'll be interested to know that actually um, there was sparing of longitudinal function. So like the TAPC was still normal in a lot of these people, but the main things they saw difference in were fractional area change or like 3D EF. Um, so based on that, some people are kind of arguing that we should be a little more aggressive in placing um, the uh, Protec cannula, the RVAD support ECMO cannula for some of these COVID patients. Um, and there's actually an article published in JAMA 2020, August 2020, uh, from an institution documenting their experience using exclusively uh, protect duo cannulas for their COVID ECMO patients. Um, one of the other big things that's different with COVID ECMO patients is you might've heard about issues with stroke and bleeding. It seems to be a significant problem. And a lot of people are attributing this to be above and beyond what you would normally see in ECMO from the standard anticoagulation. They're attributing it to that massive inflammatory response and all these crazy derangements in fibrinolysis and things like that. Um, and if you look at, like, a, for instance, a JCV article that I found, they had 10 ECMO patients and four of them actually developed uh, stroke. And that was at uh, Penn, I believe. So actually what they said in their article was that uh, they went from doing their standard anticoagulation to, do, to doing only prophylactic, uh, the standard like 5,000 of heparin three times a day with aspirin because of their such high rate of stroke that they had. Um, so that's one of the other main things. And then um, the other thing I wanted to mention, there's a nice article from The Lancet and it's just detailing a large amount of the COVID ECMO experience. So it gives you some nice information. Um, some of the takeaways I found were that about 95% of their patients were, were VV ECMO, usually femoral, femoral or femoral jugular cannulation. Interestingly, um, in their study, 81% of patients were proned while on ECMO, which a lot of places I feel like aren't really proning on ECMO, but they actually felt that contributed to some of their better outcomes. 
Um, and then, like we said, bleeding was an issue. 42% of their patients had major bleeding events and 5% had strokes. Um, so I think those were a lot of the main things I had for, for ECMO. Any, any thoughts? That's great. And, you know, I think it really highlights that COVID is not the same as standard ARDS. There's these other things going on. We don't fully understand it yet, but you've highlighted some important ones and why you need to kind of pay attention to those differences with your COVID patients who are on ECMO. I like the uh, idea of the kind of looking further into whether ProTech uh, catheters would make sense in patients on ECMO. And I'm sure we'll see more data coming out as to whether the outcomes are any different or better um, in ECMO in general, in VV ECMO in general, and certainly in, in COVID patients on VV ECMO. So thanks for highlighting that, Tommy. Um, well, guys, we have yeah. covered a huge amount of really, really excellent information. Thank you for taking the time. I've taken a lot of your time. And uh, let's turn to the final quick but fun part uh, of the show where we talk about random recommendations for the audience. So uh, I, I don't know if you guys have each have one, but if any of you have anything you'd like to share, please uh, go ahead. I, I'll start, Chad. Um, for the uh, Star Trek fans out there, I'm, I'm sure there are some... I, I just got through uh, Star Trek at Picard, and um, it, it was really a great new um, uh, uh, season. The, the, the first season's done. The second season's coming out in 2022. And for the Star Trek fans out there, I would highly uh, recommend it. If you haven't seen it yet, um, they bring back um, Picard, but played by Patrick Stewart. Um Jerry Ryan's back. She was seven of nine in the uh, Voyager uh, series. Um, they go back to um, the TNG series and um, bring back Troy and Riker. And um, and it, it's really, oh, and um, Data, um, of course, is mm-hmm. is also, he's not really brought back because he's dead, but the, but the maker of Data is brought back. So it's, it's really, um, it's really a great, serious so for you trekkie fans out there if you haven't seen picard i highly recommend it awesome great i loved star trek growing up so that will be something i'll have to check out thanks joe uh tommy how about you uh so i was i have a month off after i finished my fellowship so i was kind of starting to try to to plan something fun to do and i was thinking back to a trip i took to mallorca in it's a balearic island in spain so uh my recommendation would be try to go to somewhere like that, Mallorca or Ibiza. They're right next to each other. Uh, really beautiful area. And Spain's super f- fun country. A lot of awesome food, um, good wine, etc. <laughs> awesome. That's fantastic. I will definitely want to take you up on that. Hopefully uh, international travel will be picking up here soon. All right. And Mike, how yeah. about you? All right. So... I recommend this show on Netflix. I'll be more fun this time. It's uh, awesome. <laughs> it's a Formula. It's a Formula One show. Um, it has. It's just really exciting uh, for all those, all of you that like racing. It's it's really a great series to watch with Lewis Hamilton and the rest of all these phenomenal drivers and um, the race car drivers. And it's it's really fun. And Tommy, I think you should visit Ghana. Ghana is better, <laughs> Ghana is better than going to Spain, okay? <laughs> awesome, awesome. We'll, we'll have to do it all. But, um, and thank you. That's if I know a lot of folks uh, are very into Formula One, and that'll be fun to check out. We actually have an audience random recommendation from Tyler Jones, 
who told me that Jason Fung, who wrote The Obesity Code, which I did an episode on, has a new book out called The Cancer Code, which he says is really great. And so I will definitely be checking that out. And Tyler also says that he just recently finished reading the book The China Study. It's a revised edition. It's by Thomas Campbell and Colin Campbell. He says he found it every bit as enlightening as The Obesity Code. It was captivating and informative and gave him the most convincing argument yet for going plant-based with his eating. While Campbell takes a different approach from Fung, the two certainly grant a lot of points. So that sounds awesome and another thing great to check out. And for me, I will uh, recommend the both the podcast Cautionary Tales, which I may have recommended in the past, but a specific episode of Cautionary Tales, uh, which is called Number Fever. It's a fun ep- uh, podcast. They uh, tell um, stories of things in history and how what you can learn from them. And it's really nicely highlighted. But the number fever one is really neat. They talk about a variety of ways in which people have been caught up, uh, misunderstood numbers, and how that's led to some disasters. One fun one is that Pepsi accidentally uh, kind of screwed up their marketing in a couple of ways that almost bankrupted the whole company. I won't give any more away, but check out that episode of Cautionary Tales, the podcast. And we'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes. All right, gentlemen, again, fantastic. Thank you for taking so much time and covering this topic in so much detail. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, that was fantastic. Hopefully you learned as much as I did from these fantastic doctors. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com. Leave a comment, and we can all learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already become patrons and already made donations. We really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to my team. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. April Liu is our social media manager, and Dr. Kimia Cash Cooley is still helping out with some of the show notes. It is such a great team, and I'm so grateful to all of them. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Drs. Asando, Cody, and Grawl, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 